0: Let me uh, introduce uh, Remy Adeleke. Yes, sir. And how are you doing today, buddy?
1: Oh, I am. I'm on uh, fumes, but fumes, as long as they're running, they're running. So I'm good to go, brother. I got my protein shake, got some hydration from my hydration <laughs> station. I'm in it,
0: brother. Well, if you have fumes, you got a fire. That's it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you have enough to build the fire, man, to keep it stoked. That's it, man. Do so you drink coffee? No, I don't. I don't drink coffee. You're not a coffee drinker? Oh, my God. Yeah. Here I thought I was talking to a man who doesn't quit. You <laughs> know?
1: <laughs> and I think the last time I drank coffee, I was probably like around 11 years old. My grandmother was an avid coffee drinker. And I remember looking at her coffee mug, and it looked like caramel chocolate. I was yeah. like, Grandma, can I try it? And she was like, this isn't for kids. And she let me try it. And I was like, Ugh.
0: oh. So <laughs> was yeah, I bet you it, know, it was better. too." <laughs> Oh man, that's great. That's great, man. So, uh, where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in the Bronx. I grew up in, uh, Bronx, New York city, uh, and in a the, in the big apple, as they say.
0: <laughs> oh, no kidding. But yeah. you weren't born in the Bronx though.
1: No, no, I was actually born in, um, Nigeria, Lagos, Nigeria, uh, to be specific. And, uh, I was born into a super wealthy, wealthy family. My dad, um, was a well-known Nigerian engineer, philanthropist, businessman. You name it, he did it. He was the jack of all trades, uh, master of everything. He was into the arts, and so because of his success in business, he ended up generating a lot of wealth. So when I was born, I was born into that wealth and procedure. And also, my dad—he was a chief in the Yoruba tribe. And then, you know, in, in, in Western culture, we refer to royalties king, queen, prince, princess, Dutch, that kind of thing. But in African culture, especially West African culture, royalties refer to as chief and your last name. So my last name, Adeleke, uh, Ade means crown and Leke means is supreme or above. And then my full name is actually Ade Remy which means the crown has appeased me. So that all comes from my, my, my great-grandfather, the great-great-grandfather. And then my father was a firstborn son to my grandfather. So he took on the title of chief and obviously the last name. And then, uh, you know, here I here I am in Nigeria.
0: <laughs> so how long did you, uh, you obviously came to the States at some point, yeah. but being born into wealth yeah. and Nigeria is few and far between, right? right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, Nigeria is is one of the richest countries, if not the richest country in uh, Africa, on the continent of Africa. And, uh, you know, so there's a lot of natural resources, gold, cocoa, natural gas, um, you name it. Nigeria has it and uh, oil, you know. And so uh, but the thing is, there's so much corruption that the money doesn't trickle down to to everything i mean it doesn't trickle down to anybody except for the people at the very very top so there's a lot of poverty um and that was one of the reasons why my dad he left nigeria originally he went to the west he went to um school in london and then he established businesses in the west and then he went back to nigeria years later but if he stayed in Nigeria, he would have never accumulated the wealth that he that he was able to accumulate because of all of the corruption in Nigeria. So, you know, to answer your question, Yeah, it's it's, it's a, a very rich country. But at the same time, because of power, because of corruption, it's 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 not an impoverished country, but there's poverty because of the corruption. Right. That makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, there's definitely a. A segregation in wealth. Yeah. I mean, you have the rich, you have the poor, right? There's pretty much no middle class. Essentially, yeah. is that kind of yeah, how that actually, is? There's no middle class at all.
1: Like literally. Like and the crazy thing is, yeah. I went back to Nigeria in 2000. We'll see 2018 because I wanted to finish writing my book transform out there. And you will see like a a mansion, like a gorgeous mansion, right next to like a hut. It's crazy. What? Right. Really? So yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you, but then you go to like places like Victoria Island where we live, which is Victoria Island It's like Beverly, the Beverly Hills of, of, of Nigeria, and it's just you know mansion after mansion after mansion, really nice house compound compound. You know, uh, a lot of dignitaries live in that area as well. And so you know, it's it's it, it, it's there's rich and there's poor, and kids start working when they, as soon as they can walk and talk. They're selling, they're selling bananas, they're selling you, whatever they can sell you to make a buck for their family,
0: you know. Really, they're not going to school, right? They're, they're immediately like
1: more. The poor, the poor kids, for the most part, are, but the rich are, you know, the rich are able to send these kids to boarding school. A lot of, as a matter of fact, a lot of my old, my dad was married years before he married my mom, and, um there were a lot of, so all my older siblings that from my dad's first marriage, they all, as soon as they hit like six, seven, they got sent to the UK for boarding school. And so a lot, that's what a lot of the, uh, a lot of wealthy Nigerians do, they send their kids to boarding school in, in, in London.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. I mean, because the education system probably isn't the greatest out there in Nigeria, right? They don't invest a lot of infrastructure into that.
1: Yeah, unless you're at a really high-end um, like private school, which if my brother went to a, uh, high-end private school in Nigeria when we your
0: kids, yeah. Damn, man, that's crazy. That's, yeah. uh, I mean, and probably you seeing the poverty as well is is another thing. How long? Uh, how long did you live there in Nigeria?
1: I was there from eight. I was born in eighty-two, so I was there from eighty-two to eighty-seven. When I was five, I left. My dad died. It's a lot more to the story. Of the Nigerian government and corrupt, as we talked about, stripped my dad of his most valuable asset, which was uh it was it was known as lagoon development project but now it's known as banana island and it was one of the first man-made islands in the world um my dad had spent millions and millions of dollars he invested all of his assets into it so much so that there were times that my mom would say to my dad hey listen like you need to put your some money in the u.s because my mom is american uh and they met in, in new york and then my mom and dad got married and then my mom moved to africa with my dad so my mom didn't trust the Nigerian system. So she would always tell my dad, let's put some money in the U.S. So if something bad happens or the government decides to you know, go crazy on us like they did years ago, at least we have something. But my dad was so loyal to Nigeria and his vision he said, no, my party is this once this island is fully developed and there's office buildings on the island and people are able to do business and work there, then we'll be bringing in millions of dollars and then we'll put money in the U.S. But this is my priority right now. And so when he died mysteriously and then the Nigerian government stripped my dad of that, At this point, they stripped him first and then he died a few weeks later. There was nothing left. We had not a cent to our name because all of my dad's assets, are our, our compound that we live in, all my dad's art, everything had been leveraged and had been used um, for for the island.
0: Wow! And how? Did, so how did you navigate coming? Well, you navigate coming to the United States because your mom was still a U.S. citizen, right?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. That was and, that was yeah. That's why we. But that, you know, I was I was actually born an American citizen abroad. Um, uh, because of my mom's citizenship, my dad didn't want me to have for some reason. He didn't want me to be a dual citizen because he, you know, he didn't want me to miss out on opportunities um, in America in the future. And the same thing with my brother. My dad had my brother, who's a year older than me, he was actually born in America because my dad wanted, you know, he's firstborn son, you know, with my wife, with my mom, and so you know he wanted to make sure that you know if my brother ever wanted to run for president or something like that. Because my dad, he was a visionary. He, had, he wouldn't have any issues, so he made sure that my brother was born in, in the U.S., but for me, he made sure that I was born with, you know, single citizenship, and that was American citizenship to him. The most powerful, the most powerful thing you can have is a, is a U.S. passport, because he that if you could make it, if you can get to America... With a Nigerian mindset, which is a hard working mindset, that you can become whatever you need to become, regardless of how much money you have or don't have. And so, um, so yeah, because of that, as soon as my dad died, my mom was just like, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know this place. I have no connection to Nigeria. All my family is in America. Let me move, move my boys back to what I know. And that's kind of how we ended up in the States.
0: So, do you think there was some kind of corruption that? Oh, it was it yeah. your dad's death?
1: was that because there's a lot more to the story, but essentially in the 70s, it was a military coup, and my dad had bought this massive plot of land called Marico, and that's what he was going to use, essentially, to create his Wall Street, you know, this this financial sector. And the, when the military coup happened, the, the government took it from him. So years later, after the democracy had been reinstated, uh, reinstalled, the, uh, uh, the, the, the federal government came back and they acknowledged that America was his, but they also said, Hey, we're not going to give it back to you. What do you want back? And so my dad said he wanted this lagoon, which was this body of water. And they laughed at him because they are like, what are you gonna do with the lagoon? And him being a forward thinker figured, you know, if I create something and when it was never nothing, then no one could ever come back and say it was mine or confiscate it like what happened with America. And so, you know. When they gave him that, when the federal government awarded him that land because he's paid he spent eight million pounds for Marico, and that was a compensation, that was his payback was a was a warder, excuse me. Um that was up the deal was done, it was all good. When he went into when he started to um dredge the foreshore to develop the island, no one said anything. But once the island was fully formed. And construction built like the, you know, construction workers started building buildings on the island, and the Lagos State government saw that it actually worked. That's when they came in and said the the federal government was never supposed to award you the the this body of water because this, this foreshore belongs to the Lagos State government. So that alone was corrupt because it was like okay if that was the case. Why right? you all saw all of these all of this equipment being thrown into Lagos from other countries, engineers from the Netherlands, and all of these workers from all around the world coming in to do this? This wasn't done like in asylum right? Like why didn't you say something then? Why now? So there was that corruption there, where you know they they wanted because they wanted him to do all the work, so that they could take it from him. And, and so there was corruption there, and there was also corruption in the sense that my dad, our family bodyguard, to this day, is the manager of the island. So our oh, wow. family bodyguard backstabbed my dad and was essentially, you know, giving passing on information to some people in the Lagos state government and also the federal government who was behind it too. So in the hopes that you know he would get a piece of it when it was all settled up, and to this day he's the manager of my dad's island. Um, so it is a lot more stuff, you know, the way my dad died, and you know, and you know he was essentially he he was bit by a dog, but then he went to the hospital and uh, uh, he was given on an autopsy, it essentially was poison. So the medication that he was given was bad medication. That's what I ended up killing killing him ultimately
0: wow man that's nuts dude that's I mean that's ultimate corruption I mean okay. you know that is it, I would even translate that even happening in our world oh, today yeah. in the United oh, States yeah. you know what I mean yeah. and you're yeah. direct you know you know oh, about that yeah. you've been there done it yeah. man you know so you lost your I know
1: corruption when I see corruption I can smell it out, yeah. you know because it's like you know it, it, Especially in politics, you know, about politicians and what happen and how people manipulate things, and even media, how media gets involved and and sways, you know, uh, opinions and and projects an image of something, you know, for a politician that's that to protect that. Dude, it, it, we have corruption here too, and that's easy for me to see.
0: Oh yeah, guaranteed. I mean, I'm it's so, so easy. Right. Yeah, yeah, right.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, it's like, listen, game can recognize game, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're not passing, you know, pulling the wool over my eyes at all with this exactly. stuff. Exactly. You know, American people who don't know any better, sure, you know what I mean. But somebody who's lived it and has a tell to tell, like that, is very difficult to do. Oh, so yeah. you're, so you're stripped, man. You're stripped of pretty much your royalty there, right? At that moment, when he dies, you're pretty had, much
1: yeah. All we had was our name. That was it. Uh, we just had our name, and we just had. You know, the uh, funny thing is, too, a lot of my dad's friends disappeared as well. You know, like, my dad had some powerful friends. They all disappeared as well.
0: Like, never heard from again, vanished. Yep, yeah, never helped
1: out, never gave my mom a dime. You know what I mean? I remember when my mom, when we were kids, we would uh, ride the train with my mom did to Laguardia Airport, and she would go to the terminal for the flights that would fly to Nigeria. And she would essentially, like, wait and see people and, like, give them letters to try and get to, you know, to get to people who my mom knew in Nigeria, from my dad's family friends, so that they could help us out. And 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 we never got any help. Wow. Yeah, it was, yeah we never got any help. And but like I said, my mom would always, you know, tell us when we were kids, we would ask, hey, do you think we'll ever get the money back? And she would always say, don't hold your breath. And then she would also remind us of our name and say, hey, you know, your name is strong, your DNA is strong, we will make it. We just gotta do the we just gotta do the work.
0: That's it. And she's right. She had a premonition, you know. And uh so you come you come to back to America, right? And yeah. and now you grew up in the Bronx, which yeah. is not a easy city to oh, live man. and grow up in. Yeah, this tough. Yes. yeah so you went to royalty to to a very rough city in new yeah. york and how was how was living how was growing up in that
1: you know the early years wasn't bad because it weren't bad excuse me because um my mom did a really good job at masking the reality of what had happened um she we had this small apartment but she kept she you know she kept it well packed uh, and she the little art that she was able to bring. She peppered that throughout the apartment, you know. And she worked multiple jobs to, you know, provide for my brother and I. And she kept us inside for the most part. And you know, and I even really remember like she was able to, you know, put some coins together to get a little car. And uh, so we would just go from the apartment. School, apartment, downtown. My mom was saving money, pennies, because she would get she would get jobs at art galleries and museums in order to be able to get us in for free, so that she could expose us to the arts and expose us to different cultures and educators. My mom was a teacher. So she worked as a teacher in elementary school, but she also would work side jobs. She had a side job as a creative uh, creative writer, and she had a side job as a, you know, as working in museums and art galleries. She was always work, she was always hustling. And so part of the reason why she took these jobs, as I mentioned, was to expose us to things outside of the environment that we live in. So we would go downtown Manhattan and we would go to like, you know, the Metropolitan Museum of Natural History and and the Schomburg, and, you know, she would get free tickets to plays. And so that was kind of what we knew. And then she would also save her money sometimes and take us to a nice restaurant in Manhattan so that she could teach us etiquette, teach us how to, you know, pull a chair out for a woman, which forks to use when we're eating and all that stuff. Like I said, she maxed the reality the best she could of what had happened. So when I first got there, I didn't really notice much of a difference. And then, you know, also as a kid, you know, regardless of where you are, the world is big. You know, like when I go back to um, the playground or the area where where I grew up in or certain buildings that I went in, like, they're so small now, right? That's why, because I'm six two. You know, I'm six two, and I'm a bigger guy now, right? But before, as a kid, those things seemed so big. So even though our apartment was super small, like it, it was big to me as a kid. Now it wasn't until like I was about eight years old, eight nine, that I began to notice things and be more aware. And it's interesting because I see that with my kids now. I got four kids, and you know my eight-year-old is and my nine-year-old. I mean, even before they were eight and nine, like they just—they're aware of things. They're aware, oh, daddy's—he's on TV, or you know, oh, oh, mommy. Like I know what that means. You know what I mean? Like before, when they were kids, you could spell stuff out because they they weren't able to really put the words together to spell out what it is now you spell stuff out they're like ah i know what you're saying right so yeah hear things. and that's what happened to me as i got older i began to become more aware of my surroundings and where i am and okay my mom told me that that that, that guy uh that's buying is bought, just buying medicine from another guy And now I'm like, well, no, that guy's a drug dealer. He's selling drugs to a crackhead. Why not? Because I see this crackhead in the park all the time. And he's like strung out and he looks like a zombie. You know what I mean? So it's like, you know, I would go, my mom, yeah, my mom would allow me to go to the store, you know, as I got older. So I would go out by myself, walk just for the road and see things and see people fighting. And I was like, that's when the reality set in. Hey. I'm not in Kansas (laughs) You know what I mean And uh, And and so yeah So that was the transition It was a gradual transition It wasn't as uh, It wasn't Jarring For me How was was,
0: But how was it Taking the loss Of your father Like I mean Because I'm sure He was your protector He was your mentor He was your hero You know Like most fathers Out there are You know Like Dealing with the loss Of your father Like how did you How did you cope with that
1: you know, I, again, I credit my mom because I, um, one, I was five, so I didn't really understand death as much, right? Well, I didn't understand death at all. I didn't know what that meant, really, you know, and, um, my mom, and one, two, the second thing is my dad traveled a lot. So even as a kid, when my dad was around, he was always flying to Europe or America or, you know, flying to China. He was always flying. He would be home and spend time with us, but he was always, like, traveling the world, you know, different parts of Nigeria, different parts of Africa. So I had gotten used to that. I had gotten used to, you know, mom being around the majority of the time and my dad, like, going off and then coming back and go. So that was expected. So when my dad died... And I didn't understand that. You know, when my mom told me she delivered the news, it's just like in my mind, like, oh, okay, he's just, I don't really know what that means, but maybe that means he's just going on another trip and he's gonna come back. But then also another thing that made me think that was my mom, when she delivered the news to my brother and I, again, going back to this, this idea that my mom masked reality of what had happened, my mom told my brother and I in such a calm way. I'll never forget. She took me to this red couch, red chair, not couch. It's like this big red chair. It's like wide enough to fit like my mom and like both my brother and I. And she put me on her right side, my brother on the left side, and she she delivered the news to us so calm, super calm, just like your dad's passed away. You know he's dead and he's not coming back. And she said it in such a calm demeanor and Conway and because and we us not understanding depth that we just looked at each other like oh okay cool and then we went back to playing with our toys and it wasn't that we were malice or had no emotion; it's that my mom wasn't tripping and crying and freaking out so we weren't tripping and, and, and that's what happens typically when you're in situations in combat too you know it's like if the leader is at least like not on a at the level I operate on in the teams but just jumping down to infantry level because I was I was uh, you know uh with the Marines for a bit if the leader is level headed in the midst of chaos like calm breeds calm everybody else is going to be calm in the midst of chaos but if a leader is like jittery or unsure of himself or unsure of the decisions that he's going to make or in an unlikely event freaking out that's going to trickle down to the rest of the the, the sled dogs, you know what I'm saying? And yeah, absolutely. So, you know, my mom was, she had, I, I think she read, she told me this years later. She was like, I was like, Mom, how did you do? She's like, I kept it together because I knew that if I did it, then you guys would fall apart. So I had to keep it together so that you guys could keep it together. Because if I did it, then you guys would fall apart and I would fall apart and it would just create this never ending cycle of madness. And so, again, going back to your original answer question, I didn't, I, it, it didn't faze me when my dad died because my mom you know maintained a very calm demeanor and I was too young to fully understand
0: that that's that's crazy that she kept such a cool calm demeanor in a moment of like when she know her world was impl- your worlds were imploding and yeah. she's like well hey guys you know your father passed you know yeah. sorry and you guys went to play and I mean that's a true testament to your mom I mean of yeah. how like level headed she is yeah. and saying well now I've got to figure this out for us. And I mean, it sounds like she, you know, did the best she could really, you know, yeah. in this situation, you know, being left with no money and now figuring a way back out to the States and got there and got to the Bronx and you grew up and nine years old, you started to uh, kind of see the Bronx for really what it is. Right. Yeah. 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 And then you go down a different path. Yeah. That's
1: when I started, that's when the uh, that began the start of my downward trajectory you know in my mind it wasn't going to be an upward trajectory but in retrospect it was downward I I started you know seeking a father to fill my paternal void and I I found a father in the streets hip hop culture uh, you know all this stuff that was very prominent at the time late 80s early 90s you know you know drugs you know uh, drug dealers rapping all that stuff so yeah I started out stealing from my mom and then that grew to stealing from stores and that grew to getting jobs and stealing from jobs and then that grew to selling drugs and then that grew to running high level scams. Uh, so was
0: that so was that part so you're you're nine years old you just kind of start seeing this little trajectory the change yeah, i'm yeah. sure your mom saw it was your brother involved in that as well or did no, your brother no, no he stay straight laced
1: yeah my brother you know my brother he um he had like an awakening Around ten or eleven years old, he stuttered really, really bad uh, as a kid. And um, I mean, one day, I'm ten or eleven. He came back home from school and he had a bad report card. Not because he was being bad in school, just because he was failing. So he wasn't getting good grades academically. And my mom just broke down crying. She was just like, "Why? Don't you like you're the oldest brother, like." I really need you to do good in school. Like, I, like I can't, really, like, I need you to succeed. Like, she just, she just, she was crying And a switch went off of my brother's head. And from that moment on, he was either in school, at the library, or at home. Like, literally, like, that's wow. like, like we would, I would make fun of him. It was like, dude, what are you doing? Really like, that? But he was like, he was locked on. And he ended up like he was the he was the best one of the of, of the both of us. And he ended up going to you know get doing fantastic in high school. He graduated high school in three years. Um, he ended up getting a full ride academic scholarship to Syracuse University to study engineering, like my dad. That he got a he, he got his he had a scholarship for his masters and got his masters in, in uh, uh, computer science engineering. I mean wow. that dude like he like. He went down a completely different path than I did. Um, And, uh, you know, for me, it was just like I was influenced differently, you know. Um,
0: You were looking for a father figure. It kind of sounds like you're looking for a man in the house, man of the, you know, somebody to kind of take you underneath the wing and saying, hey, man, how do I travel this journey through life? You know, yeah. I need yeah. somebody. You're looking for something. You're filling a void. You're trying to fill that yeah. void that's missing. Every
1: kid, you know, every boy needs a, uh, a man to teach him how to be a man, and every girl needs a man to teach her how to be loved by a man. She needs her father to teach her how to be loved by a father. And you know, the biggest arguments that me and my wife have sometimes is that my wife. My, my wife is, you know, her parents divorced, and um, uh, so she was she was raised primarily by her mom. And so you know, and she had a sister. So you have a woman who's raising two women. And so my mom got my wife got her example of how to be a mom and her mom, and 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 how to raise girls from the perspective of her mom. And I have to tell my wife, you know, the biggest arguments we have that we you know, we always resolve is, "Hey, Jesse, like I'm raising these boys to be up men." And
0: we, I, we can't, I, they have to be raised differently. And as a
1: man, as a father, I have to have the latitude to do what I need to do. Because I tell you what, when these boys turn 13, 14, 15, you will have, you will, they will not listen to you. They will not listen to you. You will not have, be able to control. The only person that they will listen to is me. And that's the reality. Yeah. I mean, they, they won't fear you anymore, and I know because I didn't, when I got thirteen, I didn't fear my mom anymore. Like when I was smaller, yeah, but when I when I got some hair on my chin, I didn't. I wasn't scared of my mom anymore. You know, I didn't. I not listen to my. And, and you know, I have a lot of friends, you know, with kids, and uh, I have friends who are single parents, you know, women, and they reach out to me like, "You my this boy, he's not listening. He's not doing this. Like, can you help him? Can you talk to him? Like, I don't know what happened." There's so many examples, you know, of that. So, you know, you can't
0: help them. You can't help them. I mean, you can't project, yeah. you know, or project yourself into their world and go, all right, well, now they're going to listen to me because mm-hmm. nothing's going to change. They're not going to respect exactly. their mom. Their mom's exactly. got to step up and put the man shoes on and yeah. do what's necessary for them to respect their mother. Yeah. If they're if she's a single mother raising them by himself, you yeah, know, right. because it's night and day. My I have four kids as well. And yeah. two of my kids are with a previous wife and two are with another yeah. previous wife. But yeah. my two older kids, man, run amok, man. They run amok over there. You know, and yeah. she calls me like, hey, uh, can you do something about this? I'm like, no, I absolutely cannot. Yeah. I go, what do you want me to do? I go, yeah. if I discipline for your house, they're still gonna act the same because they're still not gonna respect you. Yeah. I was like, you gotta gain control of yeah. them.
1: at point, so you, once they get a certain age, there is no regaining control. That's the thing.
0: You got to start small, man. You got to start you gotta, small. You Gotta get
1: them young. That's why yep. like like kids have to have a healthy fear of it of their parents, both parents, until a certain like both parents forever, right? Uh, and then, um, but for dads, for sure, they got to have a healthy fear because if they don't have a healthy fear of, of, of their parents, they're not going to have a healthy fear of authority, which means they're going to be out of control and. And be more inclined to break the rules and commit crimes and do things that's gonna end up landing them in the prison. You know, sometimes I have to tell my wife, I was like, babe, I'd rather discipline my son now, my sons now, than they have to get disciplined by a judge.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. Because you, you know went you down you went down that route. Yeah. You know, yeah, you bro, you yeah. so you at nine and 10, 11, you started going down the route and you found I guess some solace, really, in in the gang. Is that right?
1: No, no, it wasn't gang. I never. I always hated gangs. So I never did the gang thing. It was just money. It was just hustling. You know, it was you know, I, you know, getting money and, and and it all came back to affirmation, right? It all came back to why do I want to get money? I wanted to get money so that girls would like me, my boys would like me, and respect me, so that I can get the affirmation that I never got from my father that's what it always boiled down to and that's what and you see that with pro athletes you know who grew up in grew up a single parent homes where they're buying like they get this contract and they're buying these Lamborghinis and these Bentleys and they're going to clubs and making it rain and then you know doing all of this crazy stuff with money and with food. and then when they retire what is it like 70% of NFL players end up broke after they retire it's like 80, a few years after they retire 80% of NBA players and they had nothing to show for. What? Why did they do all those things when they had the money? Because they were always they were seeking that affirmation that they never gave got from their father. That's why I always say it's always important for fathers to affirm their children. You know, even in little things. You know, let them know, hey, you're that's awesome. You know what I mean? You're freaking great. You're gonna. I did this morning with my kids. I went on a business trip yesterday, and um this morning I came out, hugged my kids. I was like, you're you're great. You're gonna be a great man. I love you so much. My son, my youngest son looked at me like, thanks, dad. You know what I mean? And it's those little seeds that get into their head. And now my son doesn't have to go have a friend affirm Why? Because dad, my dad affirmed me. The most important person in my life, important man in my life affirmed me. So I don't need to seek affirmation from a relationship or whoever. And I do the same thing with my daughter as well. I affirm her. You're beautiful. You're awesome. Daddy loves you. You know, daddy's always here for you. But so that she's not trying to go get that from some dude that's abusing her. And and she's going back to him. You know what I mean? So uh, a lot of what I did was unconsciously to to receive affirmation um, from people because I didn't have a dad to give it to me. And um, so I didn't, I know some people go the gang route and they like to, to get affirmation that way. But for me, it was like, get money. And, and so, like I said, I started out small. Hey, stealing a bag of chips from the store, stealing some candy, and passing it off to my friends, selling it to some, some kids. Oh, you the man, right? Yeah. You got this. Ooh, got some money in my pocket, got some affirmation. Then, getting a job, I was working at the sneaker store called Athletes Foot bad name for a sneaker store but <laughs> yeah a sneaker store and uh, uh uh you know just when credit cards had started to be this is the beginning of when before that I can't remember years like 95 96 everything was all cash for the most part and credit cards got introduced and uh what I would tell people who come into came into the store I was like if you buy these sneakers if the sneakers were eighty dollars say hey if you buy these sneakers for fifty dollars give me cash if, if if you give me cash, they use for fifty dollars. It's like, "What?" I was like, "Yeah." So it's a sale that we're running, and they would give me fifty dollars. I would pocket the cash, not even ring it up at the register. I would take. I would say, "Hey, you can't keep the box." I would take the. I would keep the box, uh, uh, and and grab their old, their old shoes, make them put their old shoes in the box, and then write defected on them and put them in the defect section. And then I would do that at school, so everybody knew me at school as a dude that would. That was selling sneakers. You want the new sneakers at a cheaper price? Come to me, give me cash, and I'll get them for you. Hey, that is the man. And I was getting affirmation from girls. God, oh, I was always with the freshest, newest sneakers. And then because I now was making money, I was always, you know, uh, with the freshest clothes. Girls, so or girls like it. affirmation, you know. And then that progressed to selling drugs. I could make more money, you know. So I'm in high school now. Selling drugs, get eyes. Who's still selling drugs, and then from there, it's like, okay, I want to make more money. The Bronx is, has too many drug dealers, and it's, it's too much competition. I'm not trying to get into drug war, so, uh and I'm not trying to go to jail. So you know what? Let me let me get into the cell phone hustle sort of thing. Cell phones just popped up and and became a thing. um and you know, so I got a little gig at a cell phone company. I got an activation license. So I was able to activate three lines of, three uh, cell phone lines on one on one line of credit. And the phones were staying on for 30, at the end of the 30-day mark. Uh, uh, the uh, person would receive the bill. Uh, they had another 30 days to pay. It. And, then if, and then if it wasn't paid in 60 days, then at the 90-day market would cut off. So I was uh, I, so I was selling unlimited cell phone plans before they existed because I would get people's uh, credit information through, uh, from a buddy of mine who worked at a hospice clinic where people were dying. Give their credit. I, I'd get like tons of people. And on one person's line of credit, I would activate three phones. I would sell a phone for between $300 to $900 depending on the phone. And, people had, uh, and I would sell them to drug dealers. And they loved it because... The phone would be on for 90 days they get rid of it, get a new phone And so like and I, I'm, That's where I was making way more money Than selling drugs, I was making crazy money And, and you know, less I, risk And less risk That's Until people started getting caught And going to federal prison Then I had to kind of dial it back a little bit But I was still making a lot of money
0: and, Wait, uh, people got was, caught doing this and went to federal prison? Oh yeah, it's a federal crime Go ahead uh, yeah. wh- how, What makes it a federal crime? Dude, you're stealing people's personal information. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. No, I forgot. I was just like, wait, what makes yeah. it a felony? I mean, yeah. I don't know today. I don't know if that would be a felony. That would be uh, oh, no. it, a ticketed it, it, ticket yeah. misdemeanor. No, no, yeah. it's, it's a plot today. is a felony. No, fine. no, I'm, I'm oh, yeah. messing with you. I'm just talking about the nature of where we're at today. You oh, know, gotta, gotta, gotta. where I mean, drug dealers get out the same day before even cops get, you know, done <laughs> with the paperwork. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, they're still doing the paperwork, guys walking out the door.
1: Yeah, it's ridiculous now. Yeah, they're crazy. crazy. It's
0: stupid. That's that's, why
1: why so, I'm did you know
0: somebody get a felon? Did you know somebody personally get oh, caught doing this? There were people in my office
1: that got caught and got charged. Wow. And so wow. that's when I dialed it back. It was like, you know what, I'm not doing this. As much as I as much as I used to anymore, I'm I'm I'm, I'm, I'm kind of regressing, and and at the same time, I started a record company because uh, I had the money, so I was taking that money and funneling it in into a record company. So my as a matter of fact, here's a, I keep this on my desk as a reminder for those who can't see it. The first album is a compilation album. You uh, this, this is me right here uh, in a uh, sports jacket with the. Uh, college shirt oh and shit all stuff that, and this, i signed all of these artists um i had some executives that, that i hired who worked for me on the record company and so all of that money that i was making was going into studio time it was going into um into you know getting the artists uh the shows and and, and giving them travel to shows and clothes and all of this stuff and so my plan i had an exit plan because i had an exit plan before people started getting caught um, because I knew that, you know, not the last forever. And so my exit plan was essentially, hey, funnel all, all of this money, invest all of this money into the record company, create some albums, and then once I have a solid, I and mean, sell those albums, and so that I can create a fan base for my artists, and then sell, the, uh, uh, try and sign a label deal with a major uh, record company. So that was the goal. That was my exit plan. And once, and that was what a lot of famous rappers work selling drugs and then like Jay-Z, Jay-Z, David Dash, like it's known that he sold drugs to fund his music, the music business. And his plan was, you know, once my, my music business takes off, I'm done with the drugs and I'm going to go straight. A lot of drug deals who turn rappers have done it that way. And so that was my plan. Cause I knew that if I stayed in it, I was going to end up dead or in prison. And so, um, you know, I did that, but unfortunately, Um, In 2002, December 2002, the walls came crashing down. I sold this drug dealer uh, like 20, 30 phones, uh, which there's a long story to that, but I won't bore you with it. And those 20 to 30 phones cut off in like a week. And it was supposed to stay open 90 days. And so I was scared to death for two reasons. One, because I was like, holy crap. my job might be on me and i'm going to go to federal prison because the phones have never cut off this early and then two this dude's going to kill me so he literally came to my house and threatened my life he's like hey you don't have me my money because he because what he did was which i knew like he didn't tell me he was going to do this initially but i figured he he was doing this is he bought the he would buy the phones for me for like three four five hundred dollars and then he started selling them for double the price so he had sold those phones to other people. And so that's where the problem was created.
0: Sparrow sure, says so I hurt his reputation.
1: Back. Yeah, yeah. And so I made him his money back. I already had money, so I gave him some money I had and then, you know, gave him, you know, made him the rest back. And then after that, I was just like, all right, this needs to stop for real. So um stopped hustling and I just went 100% okay. trying to sell my record company, trying to like get a label deal
0: how how old were you when that happened i was 19. 19 okay so you yeah. uh so you pretty much cut your 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 phone deal you know business short and was like yeah. yep i'm kind of done this is kind of hitting the end because i mean yeah. you're right i mean the federal government was probably on to you you know or yeah. somebody was on yeah. to you. you know inevitably if you do it long enough you're gonna get caught, you're gonna get caught. yeah you're gonna get caught yeah. right so yeah. and then you shifted the gears which is actually probably a better gear to shift into is legitimate work with your record yeah. studio you know you yeah. had your you had your first uh cd which i don't know who has yeah. a cd player anymore that's almost like a record yeah. player <laughs> you know you held that up i was like holy shit, man we see a cd yeah. on here like this is yeah. amazing um,
1: yeah. yeah i keep it on my desk as a reminder where i keep it, you know and,
0: uh, and it's know. a great reminder yeah. you know it keeps you humble yeah. you know keeps you motivated you don't want to go back to that place. Not
1: at all. Not at all. You know, and so, so you I, We tried to sell we tried to sell it, tried for months, nothing happened. Money ran out. So I went so you know, and I was I was spending money to, to try and get it off the ground and you know, it just didn't work out and the money ran out. And then finally, like in June of two thousand and two, which was about six, seven months later, is when I was like, all right, I gotta get out of here and that's when I joined the Navy.
0: Really? So that's so it wasn't, you know, 9-11 wasn't the catalyst that started your military career, you know, because and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I hear this often is, you know, in broad America, people are like really patriotic. But in, you know, lower income, poverty ridden uh, cities and towns and stuff like that, they don't really see America as the same like that uh, middle class, <laughs> upper class sees it. Right. It's really like you guys against America. Yeah. Is, yeah, that, is I, that correct? You know, yeah, I didn't like,
1: again, there's a lot more to the story. People can check it all out in my book, but in short, the idea to join the military wasn't mine. Whose and, was it? People can read the book and find out. <laughs> oh, come <laughs> but, on, one minute, okay. But when it came to me, when I was presented with the idea I battle with it, because I hated the police, I hated, I hated the US government. I associate anybody in a uniform as the police, whether you were Marine Corps, Navy, Army, Coast Guard, firefighter, and you know, paramedic, you were the police. And I hated authority. Because I didn't have a person to teach me the importance of authority and the importance of respecting authority. So when I was presented with it, I scoffed at the idea. And then finally I, I took some time and I was just like. But Remy, look at your life. What has your life amounted to? Your brothers in college. You haven't gotten gone to college. What else are you going to do with your life? You have nothing to show for. And so that's that was when the decision came. Um, but yeah, like you said, like I was, I was the way I was, the environment I was raised in is, is not the I'm most patriotic environment. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and so uh, I didn't join out of patriotism. I joined out of survival. You know, I'm patriotic now. I love America now, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I love America, you know, because I want to be where I am now without the opportunities that America has afforded me. You know, uh, I know people, I get messages constantly from people in Nigeria. Please, sir, please get me into America. You know, I work so hard and, and I, I cannot become anything in my country. You can work 10 times harder than anybody on the planet in Nigeria still because because of the corruption, corrupt system and because of the, the structure of the government, you won't, you won't progress, you won't progress. But here no. in America, if you have that hard-working mindset and you put in the work, and you focus, you come in poor. I know so many immigrants who come in poor and who are millionaires, rich, oh. I know, a lot of, I know a lot of Nigerians in America who are like most of my most of my Nigerian friends are doctors, lawyers, engineers, super successful entrepreneurs. And these are like first generation Nigerians, some second generation Nigerians because their parents like and grandparents are still bad enough. You know, and so and, and and a lot of my friends, they come, they've come here with nothing. Came, they came, their parents came here with nothing. But they made it. you know. Yep. Made so in
0: Nigeria, this. hard work does not pay off. Hard work is yeah. just survival.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's That's people. just
0: how you survive. Is hard work.
1: Or they hand them out. You yep. work so hard, you still don't them hand them out because it's the, the the system is not in place to reward um uh violence.
0: Well, it's a it's a communist country. No, Nigeria is a no. democracy. Oh, is it? Well, it's. I mean, like, you're right. It is a democracy, it's a democracy but yeah. kind of a you know a really corrupt democracy. It's a <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the. It's what happens when you take middle class out.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, sure. when but you, uh, when you, don't have, yeah. when you don't have people to when you don't have checks and balances in place to keep essentially keep greed in check.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I would even probably say it's a hard. That's a hard line to even calling it a democracy because there's really no checks and balances. It's like. We say yeah. you do, yeah. yeah. you know that's that's crazy. I mean, it's it's the world, man. the World outside the United States, people have never been outside this world. Yeah. Don't even fucking understand, man. Yeah. <laughs> they don't even so understand. I, I don't argue with
1: people, especially these kids out of college, like, oh, what do you know? Isn't like, dude, have you ever been to freaking Yemen? <laughs> have you been to freaking, you know, uh, Vietnam? Have you been to like, uh, you know? Bahrain, Abu Dhabi, Saudi Arabia, like, I can the list goes on and on. I've been all over the world. I've seen, like, I've been all over Europe. I've been all over the Middle East. I've been to different parts of Africa. Like, you know, I've been to eight different parts of Asia. Like, like you have no clue what the real world is like until you actually get into the real world. A lot of what a lot of these kids know is just what they've learned in school. They This bubble, what they've gotten in this bubble. Yeah you know what
0: I mean this is you know anyway I don't remember. No 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 I mean California they think California is just just oh man it's so rough here like are you fucking kidding me <laughs> like <laughs> go outside of California you see even in the United States see how rough it is um but we're going to get into that in a second we're going to take just a 3 minute break man Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, shoot. So in 2002, man, you joined the Navy, not because of patriotism, because of survival, man. Yeah, you kind of yeah. got in a little situation and you're like, man, I need to get the hell out. And yeah. you joined the Navy. What were you, what was your vision going into the Navy? What What did you want to do?
1: I wanted to be sealed. SEAL. So uh, years earlier, I had seen The Rock. And that was like the first time I was exposed to Navy SEALs. And I want to say shortly after that, this documentary came out called Bunch 234. And so I saw that I was like, oh, cool. And I said to myself, if like, I ever turn my life, it was like a far-fetched idea. It's like me saying right now, like, if I ever get the opportunity, I'm gonna run for president. Chance of that happening is or none. And so that was like the context of how I said it back then. I was like, if I ever get out the hood, I'm gonna be a Navy SEAL. But it was like, I, I knew what I had in my mind, I was like, I'm never getting this place. And so uh when I finally went to the Navy recruiter's office, um, that's why I told my to, my recruiter I wanted to do it. I was like, hey, I wanna be a SEAL she laughed at me <laughs> and uh first thing she had me do was take a practice asthma test i took that i passed high enough to get into the navy but not high enough to be getting a seal training you gotta have like a really high score. and then she ran my background and found out i had two more on top of my rest i had one in new york and one in new jersey which scared the life out of me and i got ready to I ran bolted towards the door she stopped me and uh she asked me if i had a suit and i said no she asked me if i had like some nice clothes i said i'm sure i could find something and she said come back tomorrow i was like for what and she said, just come back tomorrow. She was from the Bronx. She joined the Navy out of the Bronx. And then she went and did her time to the fleet. And then she went back to be a recruiter because it was her home. And uh, and she wanted to help people who came from where she came from. And so uh, I came back the next day. She was in a dress uniform. She took me to both judges. Judge of Jersey, Judge of New York. Said so she told him, hey, this kid's made mistakes, but he has potential. He wants to join the military after an act of war 9-11 has taken place, which I didn't. She was just saying that. And the, and the judges were both like, hey, if this guy's serious about joining the Navy after and after war. We'll expunge his record and clear his warrants. And so both judges spun my record. And then she went and stepped with a step further, punched paperwork, sneaked me into the Navy. And that's how I got into the Navy. When I got to boot camp, a Navy SEAL came and played played a video of Navy SEALs jumping from planes, scuba diving, driving doom buggies with long hair, shooting guns. And I was like, yeah, I mean, the idea had, had been there, but I was like, now I really, really want to do this. Um, the only problem was that, like I said, I had the abstract school. I was super skinny and I couldn't swim, so I had to wait till I had to get through boot camp. Then went through A school. I went through the Corman A school, and then after that, I got to my first command, which was Naval Hospital Camp Pendleton, and it was there where I was like, I, uh, I, I put the Pendleton metal man. like. I, I asked my LP. I was like, hey, can you change my schedule? Because uh, I worked in the family practice clinic. And so she was like, sure. So I worked four hours for the, the morning clinic, for four hours from like 8 to, to 12. to like 11.15, something like that. Then I had four hours off to train in the afternoon. And then I would come back and work the night clinic uh, until like the last patient left, which was sometimes 8 o'clock, sometimes 7 o'clock, depending on how many patients we had. And it was awesome man, because, I got the As Back for Dummies book. Um, I got, you know, I got. I bought the Buds documentary, the DVD cassette, the CD tape, uh, cassette, not cassette, but the DVD set. And I watched that video, that documentary religiously, built a workout plan, and I would go to the gym. I didn't have anybody training, the gym was always empty because it was the gym, it was the Navy gym next to the hospital and nobody it was on a marine base and nobody really worked out uh, from the hospital. And so it was like I had it to myself. I just started creating workouts uh, from what I saw in the videos and then like I would run three miles to the pool, uphill to the pool, uh, jump in, try to figure it out, run three miles back. Eventually I humbled myself and asked the lifeguard to talk me through the stroke and he talked me through it and I studied the ass book and like within... Within a year of checking into the command, I was checking out. I had to, totally qualified to go to BUDS. I got my, you know, my ASVAC scores uh freaking muscled up, you know, was able, I did a hundred push. I went not being able to do any push any pull-ups hundred push-ups on the screen test, 30 pull-ups on this on this on the on the screen test, you know, passing the swim, passing the run. Like I, I that was that determination and I put in the work and got orders to Buds, man. And uh that's what I that was the path. That's kind of how it all happened from, you know, me getting in and, and saying I wanted to be a CEO to me getting in and training.
0: Wow, dude, that's that's a crazy story because hard work, again, hard yeah. work pays off, man. Time yeah. and time and time again, man. Yeah. If you're willing yeah. to do some sacrificing and yeah. put in hard work, it's yeah. going to pay off. Yeah. And again, that's that Nigerian
1: mindset. The Nigerian yeah. mindset is, and this is beaten to every
0: Nigerian kid.
1: Especially American, or especially, especially. Um, oh, sure. Thank you. Excuse me. Um, especially a uh, you know the kid whose parents are from Nigeria and they live in the U.S. or U.K. There is no like to Nigerian parents, a bachelor's degree is the equivalent of a GED. You're not looked upon with respect unless you have a master's degree in Nigerian households. And hard work is like, because Nigerian parents are like, hey, I know what it's like in Nigeria. I, do, I bust my butt to get here to the United States. And you will bust your butt and become something great. And that's beaten to every Nigerian kid that I know. You know what I mean? And so one plus one equals two. And that's how I was raised. Hey, my mom would always tell me, whatever you do, do it right the first time. Give 110%, don't half-ass anything. And that was so ingrained in me that when I got to the point where I I had the opportunity to train, I was like, I'm going to put in the work. And one plus one equals two. I did the extra hard work, I got in the SEAL training. I could have made the choice and be like, oh, I can't swim, it's going to take too long to learn, like I'm skinny, the ASVAB test is too hard, yada, yada, yada. And nobody would know my name i didn't become a victim i, I became a victor and you know, that's one thing i try to tell people all the time it's like you have whatever you want to do in this country you can do it but you got to put your mind to it and sometimes you know sometimes it, the, the 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 path is not easy but that's fine maybe you got to find another path maybe you got to find a path around the door instead of through the door you know what I mean <laughs> um and so yeah man that's how i ended up in SEAL training man
0: Dude, that's motivating as fuck man really yeah. just from the point where you came from what you've yeah. gone through as a kid and then where you're at now and the decision of like I've got to change my life dude that's motivating mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you went to buds man and uh did you make it your first time I got I got no I got long story short
1: I ended up making it to first making it through how we making it through first phase got the dive phase got prideful. Uh, instead of working on what I needed to work on on the weekends, I was out partying and chasing girls and telling girls I was sealed down at the Gasland District. I was a SEAL. And uh, on the weekends the instructors would show up on their off time to help you know, train guys who had deficiencies. And I was too hungover while I was in some other girl's apartment you know, waking up during a time when I should have been waking up to go to uh, remediation. Um, and so ended up going to, I failed my first two swims and dive phase. Then I, I failed uh, a dive test. It's like a dive test called the tread where you got to do all this, you got to tread water with dive gear and all that stuff. Failed that four times mm-hmm. and then went to academic review board. And it was like, yo, you know, you've made it through hell. Week. you clearly have what, have what it takes physically, but the water, you don't have what it takes as it relates to the water. Uh, and you know, and so because of that, we got kicked out of training. So I got kicked out of training, got sent back to Camp Pendleton. Um, this time I was in First Marine Division, Battalion One Four. I was in the Scout Sniper Platoon for a little bit, and then I went from Scout Snipers to Eighty Ones. Uh, did a, Did a, about a year and a half there. Did, did a deployment. Came back, and then I, and I, and I got back to Buzz. Got back to Buzz in a year and a half. I was a trooper. I had learned from my mistakes i to taken, taken on the mantra, failure is only a failure if you don't learn from it, but if you learn from it, it's a lesson. And the lesson that I got out of getting kicked out of still training is, hey, don't show up to anything unprepared. And when you become successful, remain humble. Um, and I took that with me into my second go-round, started day one all over again. Went through Hell Week again, made it through Hell Week again. <laughs>
0: Did you uh, that year and a half? Did you work on your weaknesses? Because obviously, the the day after
1: the day after I got kicked out of SEAL training, I was in. I was in. I was preparing training to for the trip. I was training for the stuff that I was that I should have been training for Uh, when I was in training. I was training then, like the very next day after that, and I didn't know if I was going to get a chance to go back to SEAL training. I didn't know when, I didn't know if and when I was going to be able to go back if I had the opportunity to go back. But I knew that if the opportunity presented itself, I was going to be prepared.
0: That is crazy. Yeah, because Bud Train is going to highlight what you're good at. And it is going to make a big, shiny spotlight on all your weaknesses. And they are all going to come through, man.
1: Yeah,
0: 100%. That is crazy that you, you failed. But then, day after, you're like, you know what? I have to look at myself in the mirror, and guess what? This is your fault. I failed because yeah. I didn't put in the work, man. Yeah. And you and went back first, and did the work. Yeah, and that was the first time in
1: my adult life I took responsibility for my actions. Every other time before that, it was like, oh, it's this person's fault, or it's the, it's the man's fault, or it's this person's fault, or, it's her fault. I never took responsibility for my actions, but that was the first time I took responsibility for my actions. You know, it's like okay, now. That, and, and 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 that's how you become victorious in life. One, you got to look yourself in the mirror and say, hey, it's my fault. It's only then when you can truly start working on the issue, because if you don't acknowledge that it was your that the reason why you're in the pit that you're in is because you're the one that walked into that pit. If you can't acknowledge that first, you'll never be able to work on how to get out the pit, because you won't have the humility to see a way or find a way to work yourself out of the pit. And so, you know, that's why I try to tell people all the time, you know, like like take ownership. Jocko talks about that all the time. Ownership. Take ownership for your mistakes. Take ownership for your for your uh, screw ups. Take ownership, you know, and uh, and I took ownership. And like I said, I didn't know if I was going to get a chance to go back, and I, I didn't have to start training right away. And that was another thing. Like it's like how bad I tell people all the time: whether they want to be an actor, director, whether they want to be a, a, you know whatever you fill in the blank. Like how bad do you want it? And like do like do you want it in a way where? When the light's on you, you're gonna start doing the work? Or do you want it where the light is not on you and the light's nowhere near close to where you are? But you're gonna start doing the work then and there. You know, it's about, my mom used to always tell me when I was a kid, never let them see you cook. You know, like always, you always want people to show up and everything's laid out full spread, food smells good, everything's done, and you're you're dressed to the nines, like nothing happened never let them see you cook. And so that's what I did, man. I started training right right there, because I wanted it. And I wasn't gonna wait for, oh, let me get to my first command and see if I get the opportunity to come back. Oh, let me do a deployment first and then I'll start training there. No. And that's the way it is in the film and TV business, which I work in now. It's like, you know It's expensive to make a movie. It's very expensive to make a movie. And you know, like, there's a movie I'm going to be directing um, after the writers' strike, and it's a 35 million dollar movie. And we're going to get into that. Yeah, we're going to yeah. get into
0: that. We're not there yet, man. Know, we no, are I,
1: not I, there. I, I'm, just, I'm just making I'm just making a point here, but you know what? I, what I tell people is that no studio, no independent financier is going to give me that money if I didn't show, if I didn't believe in the project enough to invest my own money in it first the short film, The Unexpected, which is a prequel to this feature film, cost me about $150,000 of my own money. Cash. not wow. that's that, including sweat equity. Cash. Okay? Then there's the sweat equity. Then there's the time. Then there's all of this other stuff. Then there's the writing and screenplay, trying to go out to festivals and traveling and trying to get eyes on and all that other stuff. So when I finally got to... And then I had to write the screenplay on set you know, to prove to a financier that I can make this movie, there's a lot of things that I had to do before I got this opportunity. Now, I could have been like, ah, you know what, I'm not going to do a short film or I'm not going to write this screenplay. I'm going to wait until I find the right financier that's going to, you know, believe in me and that's going to give me the money to make this kind of film that I want to make. That would have never happened. I got the financiers and the producers and everybody attached because... I did all the work in the dark. Yep. I have I've never to seen him let you cook.
0: People.
1: Yeah, yeah. I proved to people that I believe in this project so much that I'm gonna put up my thing. And how can I go to somebody and ask them to give me $35 million to make something that I say I believe in when I didn't even want to invest my own money and time into the same thing that I believe in? They're gonna laugh at me. Very true. So um yeah, that, that, that all comes back from SEAL anyway, I get you know, I uh, get back to SEAL training. Make it through SEAL training. Um, it was a kick
0: in the nuts. It sucked. And it was the second time in. just as hard as the first time? No,
1: it's easier because you already know everything. You, you already know. I mean, for me, it was easier because I already knew what to expect. I already knew when we were in this surf torture, knew when the beatdown sessions were coming, and <laughs> we knew how long to run. When they say, oh, we're going to run you 12 miles, I knew mean, it was really going to be six miles. Like, I, I knew all of my games. So it was just like, just go through it, and endure the pain, you know? And uh, got through it and Went to a team and, you know, uh, had a great time, you know, had a great time, you know, spent about eight years in the teams and got to do some cool stuff. Was a medic, was a human guy, which stands for human intelligence. So I got to kind of do some sneaky, 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 peaky spy stuff on the side and and run sources and just, you know. So what's,
0: what was one of the coolest missions you were on, man? I mean, you talked about Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Africa, you know. Um,
1: man, it was a lot. I mean, I got from the best of both worlds because I got to build intelligence with, via sources and running sources, but then I got to kick down doors. So I mean, as far as like me saying what's, the, I mean, everything was exciting to me. I mean, you got to remember, I'm a kid from the Bronx. You know what I mean? I'm from the hood. You know what I mean? Who couldn't swim? And I'm like, one, like I'm like the 50th African American Navy Seal, around the 50th African American Navy Seal in the history of the SEAL teams. So it's like every day is like exciting really i would say the most <laughs> exciting moment wasn't necessarily the mission i had some cool missions of some cool stuff that i was blessed to be able to do but the coolest the most the, the most uh the, the coolest thing was i'll never forget Cinco de mayo particular year i'm in this country on the cia compound uh and they had like a, a pool uh uh, they, had, they had turned this, this dictator's palace into a CIA compound, and they left the pool in there, and they had like beach chairs around the pool, and it was night, and it was sickle to mind. I was sickle coronas with two CIA agents, and uh, we're just talking. And I just remember looking around at this pool, and the, the pool had these beautiful lights on the water so like the, the there was lighting in the water and just the palm trees around the tree and, and it was like the quiet ice so you hear gunfire out because you know there's firefights like way true. way out in the distance so you hear gunfire out of it. I'm sipping Coronas with two CIA agents and uh, another SEAL and I'm just like this is crazy that, that for me was the coolest thing that was I cool. got to kick down doors and do some fun stuff, but that was like, man, man how did you get here? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, especially looking at your, you know, your life and your journey, man. Yeah. What was, uh, so yeah, I, I get it, man. You run and gunning and the whole nine yards, man. I mean, yeah. you're American badass, like just for real, you know. <laughs> what, what was like one of your, like with your team guys, I know sitting by the pool and stuff like that, you know, because we want to touch a little bit on that. On, yeah. your, on your seal, kind of something that you did in it. What what would be, like, one of the things that you could go and tell us? Like, hey, cool. man, this is, like, the cool, this is the mission I could talk about.
1: Well, I can't really talk about most of the missions I've been on, but I would just say the coolest thing that you know, was doing direct action. I can be be gentle. Um, and I know because I'm freaking had to sign all his f- work and you know, uh, don't want to get this podcast pulled. But essentially, yeah, man. Was, yeah, uh,
0: I don't want to get the podcast pulled either. <laughs> I, would just, I would
1: just say the coolest, you know, just to kind of like be general, but still give you something for the audiences. You know, I, I remember being on a particular deployment. We did Vampire Ops, which essentially is the entire deployment, deployment. We slept during the daytime and we would get up at like around 5 p.m. I do my intelligence meetings and stuff like that. And then we would go out at night, and to just be able to operate under the cover of darkness, we're sneaking into a bad guy's house, walking an urban area and nobody's up. It's two in the morning, and then just doing ninja stuff, like climbing into up up, up up scaling a building to try and get in through the roof. You know what I mean? Having guys cover down on areas. That was that was cool. That was fun. I, I always wore ski mask, a black ski mask, on my on. You know, so you know, so I was like a you know, uh, bad, Batman type thing. Like, <laughs> but, but you, was,
0: you were born in darkness, and darkness yeah, is yeah, your yeah, friend. Yeah, darkness yeah, is my yeah, ally.
1: Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, man. So I would just just to be general. Like doing DAs was cool, man. With my boys, you know, what I mean, just getting out there and you know hitting targets. Yeah,
0: hitting targets yeah that's
1: and, like, and, and going after going after very evil people. You know what I mean? Like the cool thing about being on the, top. you know, people say, "Oh, well, all you guys do is you guys just, you're mindless, you know, robots. They tell you where to go and to go kill and you go kill. And the reality is that's not the game, man. Like, and, and, and.
0: Well, who the fuck says that?
1: You know, people who are, who've been, some people who've been educated in the college system and they're like, I know who that you guys are. But, oh, so know,
0: they don't know um, shit.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, um, I read, you know, I, I read intelligence reports. I've seen video feeds and I, like, I was privy to a lot of information. And we couldn't go on a mission unless information had been vetted to the, the degree. You know what I mean? Um, and so I still have to say, um to be able to do that, get that information on extremely evil people. I remember one guy who we went after. Again, of being general here, and he uh, would recruit kids to be suicide bombers, and he—I mean—he was responsible for the death of a lot of kids, teenagers, teenagers, but also young boys, ten, you know, eleven, to be suicide bombers. So to be able to build an intelligence package on that guy, track him, have people, you know, collect information on him for me, and then be able to go snatch that dude up, you know, in the middle of the night, and you know, bring him to justice. You know, like like that, like you can't uh you can't put a price tag on that. That's 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 to and then you know going back to the Bronx, I saw a lot of crazy stuff in the Bronx, you I mean they were bullied. we call them we call it bullies now, but there was some wicked people that did some crazy stuff to innocent people. I mean I remember seeing people get stomped out, beat up. I, you know I remember I was a kid, I got I was about eight, nine years old around the time when my change started to happen, I got beat to a pole on a basketball court by a guy who just got out of prison. He was like 32, a 19-year-old kid, and uh a kid my age. Just because I was I was like bantering back and forth with the kid my age while I was playing basketball against. And so I always hated both wow. I always hated people who who preyed on the weak, who preyed yeah. on those who couldn't protect, can't protect themselves. And so I say all that to say, you know, to be able to now be in a position where I can go after those bullies yeah. and like be the one that's like, oh, you messing with these people. Hey, come pick on me now. You know what I mean? yeah. Like, that's Hey, what's up? What you got to say now? And with my black mask on, you know, uh, long gun with my suppressor right in their face, you know what I mean? It's like, Hey, you know, like
0: that's cool. Yeah. You know it I mean? was, uh, so I flew UAVs man for JSOC. Mm-hmm. Oh I was mm-hmm. yeah, so I was attached you guys yeah, for yeah, you know what a what long do. fucking while man. Yeah. Long while yeah. collecting intelligence on nefarious fucking dudes. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know did and then you guys did the job what you had to do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um yeah, yeah I did that with Marsak as well, uh ODA guys. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was good. You know, it was good. Yeah, you know, you know, you know, you know, yeah, that's a you know, uh so I don't talk about my experience, but I, you know, a little bit about yours. Um, but no, it's fucking the best job I had by fucking in in the, in the military. Uh, and I loved it. I loved it. Uh, Um, so you, uh, so you only, you did eight years. Is that what you did? Eight years. in in Why only eight years, man? How come you didn't do the 20, man? You're at that Uh, one. I mean, I did did
1: 13 years total. I did one, I did one, um, Obviously, my first command was one year, but then you got boot camp, which is like three months. And then I was in BUDS for a year before I got dropped. So that's two years. And then uh, uh, then I went to the first ring division for a year and a half. Uh, And I went back to training for like, you know, eight months before I made it through. So that's about four years. Right. So, yeah. So I did 13 total. So it's about eight and a half, nine years. So I did because I did 13 years total. And then I got out.
0: And how did uh, you get out? I mean, you did 13 years. You're at that. Yeah. You're over the point of making a decision and getting out. This should have been a, like a 20 year you know, career. So right? A lot of
1: people tried to, my chief, up until she tried to talk me into staying in for the retirement. But, you know, I'm just, again, like my dad, I just see things. I, 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 it's hard for me to just see like a year out. Like, I, I'm able to, like, I am. I, 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 I've been blessed with this gift to be able to see five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years out. Right. And so first thing, my first son was born in 2014, my second son was born in 2015. And then in 2016, January is when my contract was expiring. And so I was just like, you know, having a dad die when I was five. I just wanted to be home with my boys, you know, so that was a big part of it. And then. You know, I was, you know, my last year in, last year and a half, I started doing schooling and, you know, I was in grad school. You know, my my brother's, uh, my wife's brother is a very wealthy entrepreneur um, and he's connected to a lot of other wealthy dudes. So he started hiring me out to do consulting, taking special operations principles to translate into business. So I was doing that on the side. And then when I got out, my plan, that's why I was getting my master's, so that I could not just have the special operations, you know, resume, but also have the educational backing as well. And that was, you know, I wanted to build a big business. I wanted to build a consulting business. Like my dad built big businesses. I didn't want to work for anybody anymore. You know, I felt like my the majority of my adult life had been military. And before I kind of lost adulthood and moved into being a senior, you know, I wanted to be, I wanted to have at least another half of my adult years be um, outside of the military with me trying to build my businesses and, and on my own. And so uh, so that was the decision. And uh, you know, got out of January 2016 uh, and then you know, I was in grad school in, in May 2016, still in grad school in May 2016 and that's when I got the call to work on Transformers. And that was kind of what started my... Uh,
0: my. my Wait, okay, hold on, hold on. How did you get the call to work on Transformers? So, uh, there's a, there was a, this a long
1: story short, a guy who was a SEAL worked in Hollywood. He gave my contact to this woman who worked on Michael Bay films. And Michael Bay was looking for a former SEAL with my background to just do a one-day shoot. On Transformers Five, and so, like I said, I was just writing papers. I was using my Post Nine Eleven GI Bill. Uh, I wasn't working because I had to, I stacked up a large savings before I got out. So, between my savings and my Post Nine Eleven GI Bill, some other jobs that I was doing for my brother-in-law, you know that, you know that was a, I didn't need to work. I, just, I was able to just focus on school. So. When I got the call, I was available. I was like, yeah. And I think they were trying to find some other people too, but they weren't available. And so I was the CEO that was available. So that she was like, all right, you need to be in LA tomorrow. To work. So that's kind of how it all happened. And then that one day turned into three weeks. And then three weeks turned into six months. And that's what kind of kicked off my career in Hollywood. I wasn't wow. Like, so
0: you were just slotted to work one day and that turned into three months and turned into weeks. six months three weeks
1: three weeks and then three weeks turning. at the end of the third week the casting director came up to me and she was like uh, hey Michael Day wants to keep you on for the rest of the film what's your schedule and are you available to work the rest for the rest of the film and I was like yeah I'm available. i not doing anything paying hey, me good money I'll take it and that's kind of how it all happened man. and so uh so, yeah, and then once you work on a project like that and, you know, other opportunities present themselves because you meet people on set and people hear your name and they want to hire you to consult. So I, I started consulting on more commercials and TV series and stuff like that. And then finally, like, you know, uh, after I wrote my first book, Transform, which is my memoir, that's when I was like, you know what? You write scripts because I would get scripts before I would work on these projects. Well, to consider being a consultant on this project i was like man, like this script is getting me I was like this is crazy I, was <laughs> like, I know I could write something like comparable not better than this and so let me learn to, let me teach myself screenwriting going back to the whole training thing like hey I want to be a seal I don't have somebody to teach me how to be a seal take can teach me how to uh, uh, teach me how to train for buds let me train myself let me get it done so I, t- I bought the Masterclass class uh subscription and I watched all that different my name is Aaron Sorkin and all of the, you know, uh, David Mamet and Sean Rhimes, just all their classes on uh, screenwriting. And then I, uh, you know, watch the subscribe to a bunch of screenwriting YouTube channels and learn a bunch of stuff there. And then, you know, before I knew it, you know, I was writing screenplays and because I wanted to be able to write scripts and produce content instead of be the guy that gets hired to show somebody how to make it more real and more authentic and then give away all my knowledge to somebody who's making millions of dollars and I'm making a couple thousand dollars. And so, you know, I taught myself screenwriting and then, you know, wrote a couple of scripts. And then I finally got hired to adapt the book into a limited series. That project got me into the WGA, which is the writer's guild of America. And then from there, you know, my career just started growing. And then, you know, after some, some projects and, and some opportunities, that's when I was like, okay, I want to learn how to direct. So I'm gonna watch a bunch of videos on directing, then I'm gonna actually go direct something. And I directed my my short film, uh The Unexpected, which was my first film on organ harvesting, and then you know, started then I directed another short and I just directed another short and then you know it just snowballed this so and now where I'm set up to direct a feature film. So um wow. that was a path.
0: That's crazy. How so how was it working on the set of Transformers with you know big names, you know? You know, like work cool. well.
1: I mean, one thing I learned is that you know, if you if, like, if you if, if you look at them celebrities, because I've had you know, I work with Brian Reynolds on Six Underground. I've worked with a lot of different celebrities, and one thing I learned is that if you just treat them like a normal person, then they the they all just want to be treated like a normal person.
0: Yeah, they don't want to be treated like celebrity. So, yeah, it's all about like how
1: you view like a celebrity is not something that um that projects out from a person, in my opinion. It's something that people project onto a person. So if you see somebody and you're like, you're acting, oh my God, there's so-and-so. Like, that's you projecting that onto them. Yeah. But if you're just like, hey, there's something, how you doing? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm doing good. Okay, cool. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do the shot. You go with that? Yeah, let's go. Let's go do it. If you're, if you're like that, then, you know, <laughs> celebrities don't want to be treated like celebrities. At least most celebrities that I've, I've met don't want to be treated like. They just want to be treated like normal people. Because at the end of the day, the reality is they are normal people. They're not superhumans. You know yeah, I mean? they, they put just,
0: their pants on the same way I do. Same way you do. The only difference is more people know their name.
1: And, and that's that's, that's the definition of celebrity to me. is you know, you know, it's like you have a person like myself where not too many people know my name, and you got a person like Ryan Reynolds, where you're like millions more people. That's the only difference, is more people know your name. And because more people know your name, you get paid more money to do what you do.
0: Yeah. I Actually, I yeah. like Ryan Reynolds as an actor, man. He's funny. Yeah, he's, a good he's, dude, fun. he's funny. Six Underground was an amazing movie, too, man. Yeah, What'd yeah, you do yeah. on Six Underground?
1: I was a consultant on that.
0: Okay. For, you know, realistic tactics and stuff like that? Yeah,
1: tactics and action on my right,
0: yeah. yeah, good. Yeah, I mean, uh, I got to meet Mark Wahlberg. Yeah.
1: yeah. I, mean, I, I was He's a good dude.
0: Yeah. yeah good. He was humble. Yeah, I, it's not what good. I expected. I, yeah. at first... I think that was No, it wasn't the first one I met uh, He was the third one I met I met uh, Gunny uh, What's the f- uh, You know, Gunny The fucking old guy Man, from uh,
1: Oh, yeah, from From, uh, from the I know you're talking about uh, he was from, Yeah, Full Metal uh, Jacket Yeah, Full Metal Jacket He was in uh, Seven.
0: Yeah, well. yeah, yeah and, and I met The drummer from uh, Blink-182 And uh, it Fucking somebody of uh, this one chick I can't even fucking remember oh my god it was amazing she was just above the fucking top man I was yeah. just like what the fuck is this like yeah. what is she only went to hang around officers I was like well uh, she don't want to see us like why the fuck am I here I'm out see you deuces Mark Wahlberg man we eat fucking dinner with him in Afghanistan yeah. just a straight up just a select few of us man just a straight yeah. up dude and yeah. uh I was he just talked about his life I uh, can't remember much now but mm. just start talking about his life I was like oh man that's interesting I got some does good chow,
1: every morning does Bible reason Bible with his team every morning, man. Praise to He's a good dude. Man.
0: Yeah. That's, that's awesome, man. So yeah. you, uh, and then you got your, your film, the films that your short films. What about, yeah, so yeah. what are the short films, man? Where do you find your short films at?
1: Yeah. So my, uh, the unexpected is on YouTube now and, uh, uh, just go to YouTube and type in the unexpected. And then you can put, you know, and it's, it's, there's two, I got two projects on YouTube. The title of the unexpected one is not mine, one is the Navy's, where it's like a small documentary on me. But then the other, uh, other, the unexpected is an actual short film on organ harvesting. So that's up there. Um, I have another short film that I shot a couple weeks ago. It's in post production now. It's actually a uh, companion companion, um, film to my upcoming book, Chameleon, that releases July 25th. Um, so, uh, if you, uh, when you watch the film, it's, uh, it's, it's really, really cool. I took a chapter from my book and adapted it into a short film. And, uh, uh, and so when you watch that, it's, it's going to motivate you to, to read the book, right. In order for you to find out how they got in the situation they are in, in the film, you got to read the, the, the first part. Of the oh, look at that, dude. That is awesome how you, how you did that. Yeah, yeah. In order to find out how they get out of the situation they're in, you got to read the rest of the book. So um, it's a companion video. It's a companion film that's going to go along with the book. And I'm super excited about that. That's going to release July 18th, a week before um, the book releases. And then, yeah, man. Um, and then once the writer strike ends, then we can go into production on my feature film, which is um, um, which is Unexpected Redemption, which is a sequel to the Unexpected Short film.
0: Dude that's awesome. How does the writer how is a writer why is our writer strike right now? Just because the uh, the, uh,
1: the WGA which governs um all uh Hollywood screenwriters um uh, they negotiate every few years with the AMPTP. The AMPTP uh, essentially represents all the studios and streamers and negotiates on the behalf of the studios and streamers and there's just certain things that um, the AMPTP wouldn't budge on. Um, One of them was AI. Uh, They want to be able to use AI to generate screenplays. Uh, The WGA said, okay, if you want to use AI, then you still got to be a a WGA writer has to come in and rewrite this, whatever the AI technology generates. And then the writer gets sold credit for that screenplay. So all AI is a tool. And the studio said no, uh, because they want to be able to use it and replace uh, writers with AI technology. And, uh, and so, uh, so that was one major sticking point and another one was just residuals and and pay. How you know how much we should be getting, um, you know, especially for streamers, because whereas on network T V, um, a writer will get like a forty thousand dollar residual check. On streaming, you know, a writer will get a four hundred dollar residual check. That's a big difference. So um, you know, it's, it's 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 about pay. It's like, hey, you streamers are making a lot of money and um uh, and uh you know, we don't know how many views videos are getting because there's no real ad ad space to you know quantify it, and so we need to get paid what we deserve, and not four hundred dollars. We need to get paid because you guys are making a lot more money than the networks. So we need to get paid like the networks get paid. So, um, so yeah, that so, seems so,
0: fair, man. That seems like a fair deal. Hey, listen, networks getting paid forty thousand. You get paid forty thousand from that. Should get yeah. the same pay from. Uh, you know, the, the streamers or, I mean, a scale of Bill, or more, yeah. you know, yeah. that's but, that's nuts, man.
1: Yeah, so that's what it's about. And I uh, trust me, man, it's, it's been tough because I lost a lot of work um, because of the writer strike. Um, because, you know, I had to put pencils down, can't work as a writer. And so, but, you know, it's all for the greater good.
0: Yeah, so Absolutely. Good. Absolutely yeah. I mean because you have more things To fill your plate Than, yeah, than yeah, writing got, too You got, got A bunch of yes. other stuff Yeah That yeah, Chameleon And so when does The Chameleon come out again? Uh, Chameleon drops
1: July 25th People can get it Anywhere books are sold You can pre-order it now I'm not sure When you guys are going to release this But uh, um, you can pre-order it now At Amazon Barnes & Noble Wherever books are sold If you want to pre-order A signed copy You can pre-order A signed copy At um, uh, at The Talk Shop Live Dot com, um, as well. And yeah, it's a great book. It's a story that's been in my head for like over 14 years. Um, characters are very loosely based off of me. Um, it's from Nigeria, came to the US, got, got uh, picked up for this top secret um, CIA program called Black Box. Uh, he's a chameleon agent within Black, Black box chameleon agents are people who can become whatever character they need to become at the drop of a dime. It's grounded in reality, so it's not like they can shift. It's just that they're really, really good actors. Um, and uh, and then you got ghost agents who are people in and out of places like a ghost. And you have aberration agents who are a combination of ghosts and chameleons. They just go under deep cover for like decades. Uh, and then you have a wind agent who drive vehicles. So it's a very, very grounded but you know uh fictitious at the same time world and it's uh it's it's not just an espionage thriller but it's also a political thriller because there's a message in there that is the undertone throughout the book and then it comes to the forefront towards the end of the book uh as it relates to political unity and how uh, people at the top are driving division people at the top of the political food chain are intentionally creating this division because it keeps it helps keep them in power and keeps uh money coming in to uh to their specific side so um, my goal with the book is not just to entertain and you know and throw people in a cool action thriller and espionage thriller that's authentic but also to be able to all in some way put the pill in the donut so to speak so that they can people can start thinking about okay like you know I'm I'm on the left well, maybe I could have a conversation with somebody on the right. Maybe I can look at things or I'm on the right. Maybe I can have a conversation. Maybe we could, they can be some type of political unity because the reality is, you know, um, if, if we do not come, we are, this country is being torn apart um, because of division. And primarily because of political division. I mean, there's families and members that don't even talk to each other because one is on one side, one's on the other side. And uh, a house divided will fall. And, um, And, you know, there are politicians that are pitting us against each other intentionally in order to maintain money and power. But at the end of the day, that's going to ultimately destroy this nation. And so, again, purpose of this book is not just to entertain, but to also, you know, inspire people to try and come together and find some type of common ground. Because regardless, you know, of our different beliefs, whether political, spiritual, um, you know, whatever the case may be, you know, there's, uh, there's always some type of common ground we can find, you know. So, um, again, that's the chameleon black box thriller. And uh, like I said, I'm you a- sold
0: me, man. You sold thriller. me. I'm getting the book. Yeah, pre-order, pre-order a signed copy of the Talk Shop Live link, man. Help your boy up. Dude, yeah, absolutely. Man, I'm getting the book for sure. dude. So, Remy, you are a badass. Thank you, brother. You know, you were born into a different world than most people were. Yeah. And that world was tragically taken from you with your father dying. Yeah. And then you were thrown into a world that you were not destined to do anything great. you were going to be stricken by poverty and had a hard long dark road ahead of you but instead of going down that hard dark road you changed your life you changed your path because you saw a need for survival and not only that but it also changed your heart and it also changed your mind about this country about how great this country is if you put the hard work into it if you step foot out of your comfort zone and being comfortable with being uncomfortable and put in the hard work in. You went through one of the hardest trainings, the hardest training in the world to become a Navy SEAL. You failed, but yet you took that failure as a lesson and a lesson learned to put in hard work. And you triumphed to victory, dude. Then you got out and you see a vision, man. And you are a true visionary that's going to do great things and continue to do great things in your life and for your family, man. Thank Remy, you, you are a badass, dude. Thank you, bro.
1: Appreciate you, man. Same, same,
0: man. Appreciate you. Dude, love you. Thank you so much for being on the show, man. I really do appreciate it, man. If you have a heroic story and you'd like to share it, get in contact with us. Our information's in the bio. Also, don't forget to hit the subscribe, like, and share. And then I'll see you on the next episode, badasses.